Welcome to Topcast, episode 43, if you're on the podcast audio-only version. Otherwise, this is the beginning of Infinity chapter breakdowns, as David Deutsch has called them. Um, and this is chapter 16, The Evolution of Creativity, part one. I presume this is going to go quite a while because as I was rereading it for the umpteenth time, I realized there was a lot to unpack. There was a lot to break down and I was only a few pages in. And it's because this chapter is unusual in a sense that I would say that it's not entirely self-contained. I think with a lot of other chapters, let's take um, the multiverse chapter or a physicist history of bad philosophy. I think you could dive into those chapters and pretty much take away some really important messages without referring to other parts of the book. In this chapter, it's almost like what has gone before have been the bricks cumulative building the knowledge required in order to fully understand what's being said here. And so in a sense, I would argue there's some prerequisite knowledge. But for the purpose of my breakdown, I'm going to try to provide some of that context that may have appeared earlier on in the book so that anyone listening to this for the first time will understand the gravity of what being what is being said here. I think that this chapter, as much as chapter seven, artificial creativity, is providing a guide almost for a research program, avenues that need to be explored, the unknowns in what we know about creativity. I think creativity is a genuine mystery. I think there's a number of these that exist now. Um, some people deny certain kinds of mysteries or try to explain them away. But whatever you want to call this unique feature of human beings, as far as we know, unique feature of human beings. Perhaps there are intelligent life forms out there somewhere else that are also able to explain the world in which they find themselves. But for now, as far as we know, here on this planet right now, there's no other being that can do what we do in terms of creativity. And it's explanatory creativity, which is the key thing, being able to explain the phenomena around us so that we can literally change the world around us. And we're going to get to the significance of that. I'm going to reinforce some of the things I've said earlier and some of the things certainly that David has said in the beginning of infinity prior to us getting to this chapter. But there is an assumption here by the time we get to chapter 16 that you are fully on board, I suppose, with the beginning of infinity worldview. As I guess, if you're reading the book chronologically from chapter one through to where we are now in the penultimate chapter of the beginning of infinity, one would presume that you understand what has gone before. And when you find yourself here at the evolution of creativity, David is rightly assuming you know what knowledge means, what explanations are about, what the correct theory of evolution is, not Lamarckism, but Neo-Darwinism. Uh, the fact that we don't understand certain things about human creativity, that there's something unique about human creativity. And here we're going to really dive into why it is that human creativity is going to be um, more significant than certain other, what we might say, natural forces that exist out there in the cosmos. They still exist, and they're still going to shape the reality around us, but it is 
creativity that into the future is going to become more and more and more important to the evolution, not just of human civilization, but the physical universe as a whole. That we will be using knowledge, we, our descendants, um, any technological, uh, artificial general intelligences that we create, perhaps other life forms that happen to exist out there as well. The major factor in how the universe will undergo its evolution into the deep future is going to depend not just on the physical forces, and this is one of the failings, I suppose, of physical scientists when they try to prophesy, they would say predict, but to prophesy exactly what's going to happen into the distant future. You know, if we're talking astronomy, um, and we're talking about the evolution of the sun. Today, I happen to be recording this, so I don't know when I'm going to release it, but on the 23rd of December, 2020, yesterday being the summer solstice here in Australia, the longest day of all, and in fact, um, and in fact, if I don't truncate this, <laughs> this long soliloquy, we're going to end up with sun rays shining straight in here. It's already quite bright at the moment, but I'm gonna be facing the sun straight away very shortly. It'll be shining straight into my eyes. This happens very few times um, throughout the course of the year, but today is one of those days where it absolutely will. And that sun will continue to shine, according to astrophysical models, for at least another five billion years. And astronomers are fond of saying, and then the sun will die. Then the sun will become a nova, not a supernova, it will become a nova, it will expand into a red giant, and then it will eventually have its core collapse and it will release the outer layers of its atmosphere off into the solar system. This is going to be called a planetary nebula, leaving behind nothing but its cooling hot white core, called a white dwarf. Now, all of that story is a scientific prediction based upon our best astrophysics theories and explanations as of right now in 2020. However, we don't know what people of the future are going to do. It is as magical to us that any, any person would be able to change the evolution that a typical star goes through, like the sun, as would be people saying in the past that people of today would be able to control something like lightning in a thunderstorm. But we kind of can now. We kind of can. We can, we can create our own lightning if we like. Uh, in, in power stations, we can use it to power um, civilization. That would have seemed absolutely astonishing to the people of the past. And we're only talking people of a few centuries. Imagine people not just a few millennia hence, but people a million or a billion years into the future. Will they have the capacity to control stars? Possibly. No rule, no law of physics rules that possibility out. So people might very well decide to do something to the sun to keep it shining or perhaps to cause it to disappear sooner than it otherwise would have. Maybe they will use the matter in the sun for something. Who knows? We can't do psychology on people a billion years into the future. But the point is, Astrophysicists who today say they can predict what will happen to the sun billions of years hence are assuming that the choices that people make then will have no effect upon the sun, but they might. People, for that reason, are cosmically significant and it is their creativity that allows them to come up with these possibilities, these explanations of reality, and then allow them to choose amongst all of the new choices that are available to them to change reality in ways that 
no person with a good understanding of the mere physics of the situation would be able to do. Mere physics is not going to be able to tell you what people will choose to do with the sun in the future. In fact, according to our best explanation of what people are and explanations and the growth of knowledge, being that the growth of knowledge is inherently unpredictable, and this means that people have the capacity to really choose to create new knowledge, to bring it into the world. It wasn't there before, and it wasn't predictable beforehand. That so far as we know, this is a kind of law of epistemology. As on solid foundation, none of them are on solid foundation, as on solid foundation as any law of physics happens to be. We can't predict what people will do next because we don't know what kind of knowledge they're going to create next because the growth of knowledge is inherently unpredictable. And one reason it is, is because we don't know what problems we're going to encounter next. <laughs> That's another issue with predictability. And if we don't know what problems we're going to encounter next, we can't possibly imagine what kind of solutions will be dreamt up by people of tomorrow when they encounter the problems of tomorrow. We're not there. It would mean predicting the future in ways that we don't have access to getting far ahead of myself and going off onto a tangent. As I say, in this introduction, possibly going to be me talking far more than I'm reading. I think if, I've, if I go back and I, I re-look at some of the episodes, uh, you may notice that it's often something of the order of 70% of me talking and 30% me reading. And sometimes I'll get up to 50 or a little over 50% of the time I'll spend reading. Today, I expect to be reading far less, talking far more. It certainly may be worth going back and rereading or re-listening to chapter seven, um, artificial creativity prior to this, because it really is key to understanding the evolution of creativity. Back there, we kind of have some explanations of what we mean by creativity. Creativity of the human kind, not creativity of the evolutionary kind, namely the kind of creativity that mindless uh, DNA, mindless genes happen to go through in their creation of new species. I use that word advisedly, but the species that come into existence really are created. They weren't there before. And so the DNA is able to create these new species via the process of evolution by natural selection. Um, we don't fully understand that process. There are gaps in our knowledge about that. And I think I've said before, one of my, the gaps in my knowledge about the beginning of infinity was that I thought prior to the beginning of infinity and coming to understand David's perspective on this, the process of evolution by natural selection, it's understood in broad strokes in some ways in fine details and otherwise, but there is no way that we understand everything by the metric that, as David puts it very well, uh, and this is also back in chapter seven, page 154, if you can't program it, you haven't understood it, which is a deep maxim running through the beginning of infinity. And that if someone purports to understand something, consciousness, let's say, and they can't write an algorithm such that a computer could be programmed to instantiate that particular quality, then the person doesn't really understand what they're talking about. Their broad brushstrokes will be too broad to really capture in David's understanding what the term understand really means. 
And this is true of evolution by natural selection. We cannot program a computer that can really evolve in the way that life forms evolve over time on Earth. All we get is evolution within the parameters of whatever the programmer has decided those parameters will be and what those rules will be. But evolution by natural selection in the real world throws up the unpredictable, throws up the genuinely new, the genuinely created by a mechanism we don't have a full handle on. There are many unknowns with evolution by natural selection. But it remains, of course, just because there are very, very many unknowns doesn't mean you leap to some other theory where there are even more unknowns. This is a common misconception within epistemology. And of course, that's the God of the gaps idea. If someone comes along and says, well, you people who think that evolution by natural selection is a good explanation can't explain X, Y and Z, and they might be right that we can't explain X, Y and Z, may then say, well, therefore, creationism of the kind that a religious person believes in is really true. It's the better explanation. Of course, it's not because they also can't explain X, Y, Z, except by recourse to the general purpose explanation of God did it, okay, or a wizard did it, as David likes to say. So what evolution by natural selection does, deficient though it is in some areas, by which I mean unable to fully explain absolutely everything about the origin of species and biology as we see it, all sciences are like this. All sciences have gaps. That's the whole point of science. There's no such thing ever as a completed science. What we have are ever better explanations, ever better theories over time. And evolution by natural selection is one such, where we do not know with the fidelity required to program a computer exactly how evolution by natural selection works. Now, there are some theories that we know well enough that we can program a computer. These theories are often the ones that we have shown to be false. And trivially, of course, um, Newtonian gravity, Newtonian mechanics, classical mechanics is kind of like this. We're able to program computers to perfectly well replicate what Newtonian classical mechanics is able to predict. And it's able to predict, to some extent, the motion of bodies throughout the solar system. It gets it wrong in ways that general relativity does not, However, we know it well enough to be able to program our computers with it. So too with general relativity, of course. Now, when it comes to human creativity, we don't have the capacity either to program into a computer human creativity. If we did, then we could program a computer to be humanly creative, which would mean we'd be able to program it to have the capacity of, or have the quality of being a human. In other words, it would be a human or at least be a person, would be a better way of saying things, of course. A human would be a special case of a person in that, in that case, because we would have a person inside of a silicon device of some sort. But it would still be a person because it would be creating an open-ended stream of knowledge. It would be creating explanations. It would be trying to understand its world in the way that we understand the world, through conjecture and refutation and so on, in the way that Popper explained that knowledge grows. So. Without further ado, <laughs> let me get into the book and into chapter 16, The Evolution of Creativity. And I'm going to stop quite frequently. I hope this isn't too frustrating for listeners, but we'll see how we go. And David begins, what use was creativity? 
Of all the countless biological adaptations that have evolved on our planet, creativity is the only one that can produce scientific or mathematical knowledge, art or philosophy. Pausing there because straight away, straight away we have a statement that should really make us put the brakes on and just unpack for a moment. This here, this first claim here, that creativity is the only one that enables us to produce mathematical, scientific knowledge, art or philosophy, tells us something about the difference between humans and other animals. That long wondered about moral dichotomy. What makes us special? Are we special? Aren't we just another animal, a curious kind of water ape that can talk? Well, these kinds of ways of diminishing what people are, I would say diminishing what people are, and as I like to say, diminishing their cosmic significance, suffer from the flaw that they overlook the fact that it is creativity, so far as we know, completely unique to humans in the universe as of today, that allows for us to produce science and philosophy. And the real key is that that capacity allows us to model in our own minds the rest of reality, which increases, our models increase in their fidelity in representing the rest of reality over time as well. That is an absolutely astonishing fact about ourselves and reality as a whole and the laws of physics which allow this to happen, that inside of our minds, we create models of everything else that's out there. And over time, through creativity, through generating explanations that become increasingly hard to vary, the model in our minds more closely resembles the actual reality that is out there. And as David says in one of his TED Talks, it contains a superficial image of the things that are out there, but far more than that. The relationships between the abstract objects that are inside of our minds become far more closely related to the relationships between physical objects that are out there in space-time and behaving in certain ways. In fact, space-time itself considered as an object in physical reality as well. That our models of these things, space-time, matter and energy, uh, civilization, uh, living things, so on and so forth, etc., etc., our models of those things inside of our minds come to resemble, to mirror what is going on out there with increasing fidelity over time never perfectly, and always with the possibility that what we think could in fact be wrong. But there's something there that is converging. We are converging upon a reality. The model here represents what's out there. And that's true for everyone. And it's this very strange thing because I think it might have been Feynman who said, people are interesting because it's almost like it's atoms observing atoms, atoms looking at atoms. But it's far deeper than that, of course. It's not just atoms looking at atoms. As astonishing as a, fa a fact as that might be, a, 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 an insect would be a collection of atoms looking at other atoms as well. Uh, this is a set of atoms that is observing the world, certainly, but coming to understand the world and generating a model of the world as well. Okay, so let's continue. Now, 
as you can see, the sun is beginning to creep in. So I'm sure it's destroying my green screen behind me in some way, but we will persevere anyway. I could close the blinds, but I, I just want to see, I'm just using my creativity to see what the heck is going to happen with my carefully set up arrangement here when the full force of the sun, 150 million kilometers away at a core temperature of 15 million Kelvin and a surface temperature of 5,500 Kelvin comes blaring straight through that window, straight into my eyes. Let's see what happens. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for this ride. Let's see what goes. <laughs> it's almost Christmas. I'm just, uh, I, I want to see if something really unusual happens. Like it completely destroys my recording or something like that. Okay. Okay. So we've, we've read a sentence so far. Let's go to the next one. Through the resulting technology and institutions, it has had spectacular physical effects, most notably near human habitations, but also further afield. A substantial portion of the Earth's land area is now used for human purposes. Human choice, itself a product of creativity, determines which other species to exclude and which to tolerate or cultivate, which rivers to divert, which hills to level, and which wildernesses to preserve. Now, I'm not even going to get through that sentence without pausing myself right at the beginning of it, where David says, human choice, itself a product of creativity. This link, I haven't read anywhere else quite so explicitly. It may be out there among other philosophers, but if so, I haven't read them. I've read some of the texts that many other people read on the topic. Uh, namely on creativity and on free will. Um, but we tend not to get this kind of link. And David doesn't mention much about free will in the beginning of infinity. Um, but, but it is mentioned. And it's, and it's mentioned in the context of creativity. And I'm really attracted to this idea that human choice is indeed a product of creativity. And it certainly informed my own thinking on this whole idea. I don't know how to divorce free will from choices. That if choice exists in the world, and in, uh, then, then if choice exists in the world, and we are the agents that do the choosing, then we have free will. Our will, the thing that we want, is free to choose among these things. Now, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be if, of course, as many people observe, if someone coerced you in some way, then your will is less free. You want to do X, but you're not allowed to do X for fear of violence or something else. Fear of death, perhaps. So you can't do X. So your will has been constrained to do something else. You don't really have the free will that you did. So I think free will is this spectrum, this, these degrees of freedom that you have. And, and importantly with human beings, unlike with, say, dogs or cats okay you have the, the, the classy experiment figure out what um what, what what food the dog likes and so you put out two different kinds of food and you let the dog go to the one that it prefers did the dog really make a choice well in one sense it kind of did because there were two things there in existence but it did really contemplate or did it just rely upon what its genes were telling it to do are we any different in this case we are because Unlike with the dog, we can choose to create something completely new that isn't there before us. 
And that choice itself, that choice to actually do, go through the effort of creating, is itself a free choice that we don't have to make. One can consider when, you know, in a similar situation, in the evening, you, have, you want to have dinner, you've got a certain number of things in the fridge, there's a certain number of ways in which you could combine them into interesting meals, you can choose among them, that's a free choice, but you could also choose to do something completely different and go to the supermarket and buy some more ingredients, or to call up a restaurant and get something delivered, so on and so forth, etc., etc. We really can create new choices, bring new choices into the world. This is our creativity in action. And the act of choosing among these things is what I would regard as free will. So I, I just regard um, creativity, choices, and free will, and this capacity to explain the world as all intimately linked. None of them have good explanations. And so it's for this reason I kind of agree with David where he says elsewhere in the book that they might all come along for the ride in the one jump to universality. That as soon as you have this jump to explanatory universality, people being universal explainers, then all of those things come along, including consciousness as well, perhaps. We don't know, but the point is that it seems like a parsimonious idea that these are all facets of the one deep, profound mystery of what human personhood is about. We're conscious, we're creative, we make choices in the world, we do those freely. Um, and so perhaps whatever the ultimate explanation is of these things, or what, whatever the explanation of the future is that enables us to create artificial general intelligence, that we will recognize that these words that we use, creativity, consciousness, free will, whatever, that all of these things will come together in some way and we'll have a better understanding of each of them and the ways in which they are real. But I say that they're real. One reason I say that they're real is because they are unavoidably part of the explanation of what it is that people are doing. It is an explanation of their behavior, an explanation of how it is they create science and civilization and everything else that trying to remove any of them causes more problems than it solves. You're left wondering if you think something like um, creativity isn't some kind of deep mystery, um, that in fact, all we need is ever more um, faster hardware and eventually we'll achieve escape velocity. We'll have artificial intelligence that is creative and more creative than us. And it's just a matter of processing power, which is it seems to be the most popular idea right now. Okay, the, 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 this Nick Bostrom um, singularity idea that all we need is faster processing, and once we've got sufficient amount of processing, sufficient amount of memory, so on and so forth, then we will have an agent that is able to think faster than us about anything at all, better than us, and therefore the problem of creativity is solved at the hardware, um, at the hardware level. Uh, many of us think that is completely wrong. That assumes a solution to what creativity is. It sidelines creativity and says creativity is no deep mystery, that, that we are just um, uh, processes with some memory and there's nothing particularly special about the software. Of course, what the beginning of infinity teaches us, what David Deutsch's main point is in a lot of this is that the hardware has very little to do with this mystery at all. 
It's all about the software. This is the great mystery. We have this algorithm running on our brains that is able to uh, improve itself over time and improve its understanding of the world over time as well. And it can augment itself with technology. Um, but it's got nothing to do with how fast we can think. Um, the computer can think faster than us, but it's not more creative than us right now. But, but of all of these um, uh, qualities, I would say, of the human mind, which may be synonymous one with another, creativity, choices, consciousness, um, the ability to be a universal explainer, free will. That last one, the free will one, is the most contentious one, it seems to me. Maybe consciousness is up there as well. And as I've observed elsewhere, um, there are certain philosophers who will deny free will, but regard some of the other aspects of this as deeply mysterious. Uh, Sam Harris, who I respect very much and love to listen to on this particular topic, uh, has written a book, a vehement defense of the idea we do not have free will. Simultaneously, he also argues that the deepest mystery in the universe, aside from the existence of the universe itself, is the fact that we are conscious. So as he dismisses the free will issue, uprises consciousness as being a profound and deep mystery. And he says that his subjective experience of consciousness reveals to him that free will doesn't exist, that you do not have a subjective experience of consciousness. And here all I can say to that is we would just have to disagree because I do have a subjective experience of consciousness. Now, if you meditate and clear your mind of everything, it should be no surprise to you that it seems as if you have no free will because it then seems as if the thoughts are arising unbidden by you. But if you are really trying not to concentrate and actively trying to dampen down your thinking, then of course it will feel as though it'll be a sensation. And this is, this is a theme running through Sam's philosophy, this idea of feelings, that you have the sensation or the experience of not having free will or the absence of free will. I'm unsurprised that you feel as though you've got an absence of free will when you're not thinking, when you're not trying to think hard about what to choose to do next. But if you try to be conscious of the choices before you, I think that in those moments, and you can be mindful in your conscious experience of the present moment, I think you will find that you can experience the very real sensation of actually having choices in the world and that you will freely be able to choose one thing over another. But th this takes us um, far and wide away from where I want to go with this chapter, just to say that almost in any of these debates where people end up at loggerheads about the existence of free will or not, I, I think we can happily grant to people, okay, I'll agree with you that your form of free will doesn't exist, okay, for the purpose of moving forward and making progress on this particular question. What's the particular question? The deep, profound mystery that almost everyone interested in this topic will agree is there somewhere. So Sam might think, well, it's not there in free will. Okay, fine. It's there in consciousness. Then I agree. I think we need to solve that. that that's a really important thing to solve. Now, Daniel Dennett, of course, um, as many of us, when we've read his book, interpret him to be saying that consciousness is no deep mystery. 
Um, and so he, he, he dampens down consciousness, but what rises up for him is free will. He's a compatibilist. And he says, well, this is a, a mystery. Um, it's, it's compatible with the deterministic laws of physics, which is my view as well. Um, so it, it tends to be the case, and Jaron Lanier makes, makes this point as well, that when people deny one mysterious aspect of reality, it tends to crop up unbidden somewhere else in their uh, ontology, you know, what they think um, reality consists of in some way. And he uses the, the example of um, the nature of personhood, that if you dismiss the deep mystery that is what it means to be a person, what a person is, and the fact that a person is, in his words, an infinite well of mystery, which is this, this idea that tries to capture the fact that we don't have an answer to what a person is. We can't program computers to be people. He agrees with David Deutsch there. He says the people who dismiss that as being some sort of deep mystery tend to find themselves uh, caught up in uh, concerns or confusions about what the present moment means. Because the people who dismiss the deep mystery of personhood are often uh, reductionists in the physicalist sense. They see a block universe, you know, as general relativity might say, us, that the, the past times and the future times, as well as the present time, are uh, all just instances of times. There's just times off into the 13.7 billion years into the past and off into the uh, extreme deep distant future. But there's no privileged times. Yesterday is just as real as today as tomorrow in, a, in this universe described by special relativity. Um, this block universe. All of the times exist in some way and none of them are privileged. That's the picture we get. It's just your perspective. Okay, If you're on the other side of the universe, then the time that you see is not simultaneous with my time. We get into this deep questions of physics, right? But a person who believes um, that there's no mystery there then has to try and explain why it is that now, here, for you, things are special. Something is different. The present moment is illuminated in a way that yesterday is not. That you don't experience yesterday in the same way that you experience today, right now. You only experience now, now. <laughs> so there's this weird mystery um, that exists in the universe about why the present moment is different to other moments, why you experience the present moment is different to other moments. This is what Jaron Lanier says about people who try to deny the deep mystery of consciousness. It tends to crop up in this other way. And so too, I would say, with any of these questions about creativity or free will or choice um, and consciousness. We've gotten barely through the first paragraph. Okay, so let's, let's keep going. And I'm going to pause again shortly. Just to recap, human choice itself a product of creativity determines which other species to exclude and which to tolerate or cultivate, which rivers to divert, which hills to level, and which wildernesses to preserve. And this is a very beginning of infinity thing to say because it again casts people, rightly so, rightly so, as heroic in the universe as saviors, not destroyers, as people who are trying their best, not only to survive on the planet, but to help other life forms as well. We're the only, so far as I know, uh, modular, the odd exception to the rule out there somewhere or other, but we are basically the only species that consistently helps other species. There might be symbiotic relationships out there somewhere or other where sometimes one species will help another species in order to get help back from itself. But um, 
people here on this planet, we try and save the pandas, even though the pandas apparently don't want to be saved and aren't trying to save themselves. If human beings did not exist, the extinction level event would eventually happen. It could be tomorrow. It could be 50 years, 50,000 years, 50 million years. The asteroid is coming. The supernova might happen. The climate will change. And there will be nothing that other species on the planet will be able to do about it. Only we and our choices and our ability to create knowledge will be able to do anything about those things. And we will. We will choose to do um, the right thing for ourselves. And as a side effect, that will often help other species. People like to preserve uh, wilderness areas, some of us more than others, because some of us think that wilderness areas are actually beautiful, aesthetically beautiful. And so that's a reason for preserving them. We also do like the look of tigers and lions and like to be able to go on safari. So if for no other reason than that, we like to try and preserve the environment in which we find ourselves. Of course, it's the consensus right now that humans are causing the next mass extinction and all of the damage around the world. But this is not true. This is not true. It is only people that are saving the planet from destroying everything that's on the planet. The geological forces, the cosmological forces that are out there eroding the planet, destroying species and habitats, only we are saving it. Now, the small amount of if side effects that we have by us trying to eke out an existence in this extremely hostile environment will, of course, sometimes displace other animals from their habitat. But those other animals inevitably will be wiped out, will go extinct by the next extinction level event, which is going to happen. That is the history. 99.9% .9 of all species that have ever existed on the planet have gone extinct. And that will continue to happen. We want to be the exception. And the only way we can be the exception is to use our capacity to create explanatory knowledge. And the only way we can make other species the exception is to use our capacity to create explanatory knowledge and to use the resources that are available to us to protect ourselves and those other animals. If we slow down our progress and the rate of knowledge creation, not only do we condemn ourselves to certain extinction, we condemn the rest of the species on the planet to certain extinction as well. And even if you're only concerned about um, life in some form surviving, it won't. The expansion of the sun, absent us being here, will absolutely sterilize the surface of the earth. So there is this irony with us right now that we are the only species able to save the panda, for example, or save the whale, while we're simultaneously being blamed for both of those species' extinctions. Okay, or take the blue whale and the, the, the Asian panda. Um, we are the only ones doing anything to try and save these animals. And yet we are consistently blamed for killing or destroying those animals. Um, even if you think that it's possible that both of those things will happen, the whales and the pandas will all be wiped out at some point in the future by a natural catastrophe, unless we step in now. Nature is not friendly. 
It's hostile. The universe is terribly, implacably hostile. Okay, I've nearly completed a paragraph. Let's go back to the book. David writes, In the night sky, a bright, fast-moving spot may well be a space station carrying humans higher and faster than any biological adaptation can carry anything. Or it may be a satellite through which humans communicate across, across distances that biological communication has never spanned, using phenomena such as radio waves and nuclear reactions, which biology has never harnessed. The unique effects of creativity dominate our experience of the world. Okay, again, um, and then the sun has begun to shine straight into my eyes. I'm going to persevere anyway. I'm not closing those blinds. I'm refusing to do so. I'm going to be creative and just see what happens. <laughs> um, okay. So the unique effects of creativity dominate our experience of the world, said David there. And I've made this point before about if you live in any city around the world and you look around, then what you see is less due to the action of purely deterministic physical forces, you know, in the case of Sydney, the action of geological weathering and erosion over time uh, eroded out the Sydney basin. And I've made this point before. But if you look at the city skyline of Sydney, and I'll come back to this shortly with a specific example, you look at the city skyline of Sydney, trying to use our natural sciences in order to explain what's going on there, the appearance, what we see in this picture of the Sydney CBD, trying to use geology or plain physics in order to explain any of this is going to be a fruitless exercise. You're going to miss the point if you try and use those natural sciences. You need to use the proper explanation. Why does Sydney look like this? Well, the reason Sydney looks like this, and there's a number of buildings there that are prominent, but let's take um, Sydney Tower there, which is the tallest um, building, at least as of today, in Sydney. Someone chose to build that thing, and someone chose to design it that way. Someone created the design, and then people came together and freely decided that they would put their efforts into constructing and raising this thing up into the sky. That's the explanation. The, the geology and the physics kind of by the by. Um, they're the things that the people choose to use uh, to, to, to take advantage of, their knowledge of those things in order to build structures like this. So if we seek to explain, and not merely describe in terms of deterministic laws, then we must invoke creativity and various other abstract realities. Reality is indeed a unified whole. Of course, reality is a unified whole. But at the same time, we can divide it up into different, in different ways. Um, Space-time and matter and energy, or fundamental particles and emergent objects like cats and galaxies, or the physical and the abstract. And these various ways of, of dividing up reality, of dividing things up, don't privilege one aspect over and above the other. It is as correct to say that the cat is moving the atoms from A to B as it is to say that the cat moves from A to B because the atoms making up its body do. But there is a real distinction between, and this is another way of dividing up reality, explaining something in terms of things that exist 
and having an in-principle description of what the particles are doing. And I've made this point with people recently, and I, I, I guess I am going off on this tangent a little bit much, um, but let me just harp on again for a moment about this. The explanation as to why at the higher emergent level that certain things occur is really the explanation. It is not the fact that certain things were determined to have happened because the Big Bang happened and the laws of motion acted upon particles over time and caused them to appear where they appeared today. That is not an explanation. That is an in principle, you would be able to describe the motion of those particles and where they end up today. And so this is why the fabric of reality, Winston Churchill, copper atom story is just so deeply profound. And I think escapes sometimes the uh, escapes discussions on this topic. Let's just recap that. And you can you can fast forward the next five or 10 minutes as I go through this yet again. But but let me try and refine it in a certain way. The, the, the situation is this. There is a statue in Parliament Square in London of Winston Churchill. And the tip of that statue is a copper atom. Why is the copper atom there? Now, on the one hand, you can say that well, the copper atom is there for the same reason that any atom is anywhere right now. And any atom is anywhere right now because 13.7 billion years in the past, approximately, the Big Bang occurred and all of matter and space and energy exploded out from that point. And eventually some of it, over millions of years, coalesced into stars, the first generation of stars. At the end of their lives, some of them exploded in supernova, supernovae, explosions, and scattered their contents across a wide region of space. And some of those atoms, due to astrophysical processes, were copper atoms. Those copper atoms then coalesced, mixing with the hydrogen, helium, and the intergalactic space. And some of them formed new stars. And some of them formed planets as well, like the Earth. And so the Earth formed out of this previously exploded star or stars and contains copper. And the copper atom, again, under the forces of nature, under gravity and electromagnetism and so on and so forth, weathering and erosion, ended up in uh, a certain place where it was quarried and the forces of nature eventually caused it to end up at the tip of Winston Churchill's nose. Um, and that's why that copper atom is there, due to deterministic physical laws. That's not an explanation. That's a general purpose statement about any particular bit of matter anywhere in the entire universe. And when people try to invoke this to explain away something like free will, for example, and try to say it couldn't have been a free choice because you were determined to do what you were determined to do because at the Big Bang, the laws of physics that were there are still acting right now and you have to obey these deterministic laws in the same way that the copper atom had to obey a deterministic law to end up where it did. It completely misses the point about what an explanation truly is. Free will is not an attempt to get outside of the laws of physics. And it's an attempt to explain what is really going on in the context of a deterministic universe. 
in the context of a deterministic universe, we have species arising that didn't arise before. But no biologist should be tempted to say, well, there's no such thing as evolution by natural selection. Evolution by natural selection doesn't really create new species. All that's happening is atoms are following deterministic laws of physics. That would be ridiculous, and I don't think any physicist makes this point, I don't think any scientist, no biologist makes this point. What they say is, the explanation of the origin of species is evolution by natural selection. It's this emergent concept that these things called species exist, this thing called selection exists, and that niches are filled, or niches, as some people say, by organisms that are fittest in that particular environment. And if the environment changes, the genes are selected against, and the species can sometimes go extinct to be filled by new species with genes that are fitter for that particular environment. That's an explanation. It's an emergent explanation. But all, and all of those things are real. They're really happening. Selection is really happening. Adaptation is really happening. Niches really exist and species really exist and fill those niches. Now, in, in precisely the same way, all we have to say is that the reason why, for example, the copper atom is at the tip of Winston Churchill's nose, the explanation of that is that there was a war called the Second World War involving two sides of great powers, dominant among them the United Kingdom and Germany, the leaders of whom were Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill eventually won the war for his side. And so we like to, out of respect, remember great heroes who saved civilization, one of whom was Winston Churchill, and as whom we learned recently, uh, Karl Popper thought was a great epistemologist. Uh, go back to a previous episode for that one. Um, Winston Churchill is... His statue is there with a copper atom at its nose because we make statues out of bronze so that they don't weather away quite so quickly. But someone chose to build that statue, chose to design it in that way. In fact, groups of people came to that decision and freely chose to do so. And trying to eliminate choice and freedom out of that whole picture is to break what would otherwise be a good explanation. Because we try and say it's merely determined by physical laws, deterministic laws, then we've missed the entire point of trying to explain what's going on in the real world. This reductionist uh, conception of how it is that reality evolves over time is simply, it's not false, but it simply misses the point. It's true vacuously. We can always say that anything that happens was determined to happen. It doesn't get us very far. Um, in denying the supernatural, we don't have to embrace pure reductionist physicalism. We can take another avenue where we say, yes, of course, physics is fundamentally true. It's correct as a description of reality but it doesn't explain everything that's going on. And besides, the strange thing is that for someone who says they could in principle, in principle, predict what a person is going to do next or predict what is going to happen next, 
If they had a full description of the laws of physics and the initial conditions, is doing nothing, in my opinion, but invoking the supernatural. Because what is this thing that is able to actually do that predicting? Well, an oracle with the full knowledge of the laws of physics. Well, this oracle is basically the omniscient theistic God, the God that knows everything that's going to happen, the God that created the universe and knows everything that's going to happen. So it is a, an appeal to the supernatural. Now, someone might say, oh, no, well, we don't need that. Maybe we can just have a supercomputer of the future. I doubt it. Um, this supercomputer of the future would have to calculate all of the different alternatives that could possibly happen in countless numbers of universes. And it would have to know with perfect precision what the initial conditions are at any particular given time so that it can make this deterministic prediction. But we know from physics you cannot have a perfect understanding of the conditions at any particular time. For all the atoms in the universe, we're going to have a perfect understanding of where exactly they are. We know that's not possible, given the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, among other things. But we know that we can't have this complete knowledge simultaneously of every single atom in the entire universe. Relativity for another reason. So this idea that we could in principle, in principle have this predictive mechanism that would allow us to determine exactly what's going to happen next is itself an appeal to the supernatural. The device required in order to do this would be magical. It would have to have all the qualities that an omniscient creator of the universe would have. And so this is why I reject this idea that in principle, the idea that we could, um, with full knowledge of the laws of physics and full knowledge of the initial conditions, predict what's going to happen next, therefore you don't have free will, I think is false. Because I don't think such an in-principle um, argument has any bearing on the reality of free will when, in practice, it will never be possible. It will never be possible because no such device can do such a measurement of all the particles in the entire universe. It would have to be a god of some sort. Okay, that takes me far away from anything to do with this chapter again. I think I've just decided that this is not going to be um, episode 43, part one of chapter 16. I think this is going to be part zero. This is an introduction to, <laughs> some introductory remarks to the beginning of infinity. Now, I can't really go back and insert this at the beginning of the chapter because it's going to look a little bit weird because at the beginning, if you remember, the, the, the sun wasn't shining straight into my eyes, but now it is. <laughs> so that would look a bit weird if I cut from sun shining into my eyes to sun not shining into my eyes to sun shining into my eyes again. That would look a little bit disjointed. So we're just going to persevere. What we were saying to recap, to go back, um, the David was saying that the unique effects of creativity dominate our experience of the world. Okay, I wanted to go back to this idea that creativity is the thing that determines the, the physical look, among other things, of the structures we see around us, as David says, dominate our experience of the world. Okay, so I think he means something significantly deeper than this, our literal experience of the world. As we're walking around in the world, we're creating explanations of what we see. Um, when we interact with people, we're creating knowledge. Um, but uh, just for illustrative purposes, I want to illustrate this with, again, the Sydney CBD, but a particular part of it that many people will be familiar with. 
namely uh, what's called the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which connects the Sydney CBD with the northern part of Sydney. It took a while for this bridge to be built back in the 1930s, prior to which people had to drive a long way around the harbour and take many hours to get from the southern part of Sydney to the northern part of Sydney. Now it takes mere minutes. Uh, this is a very big bridge, and I want to ask the question why it is that it looks the way that it does. Just to harp on this uh, for a little bit longer. Well, of course, it, it looks the way that it does because the architect and engineering team wanted it to look the way that it does. In fact, they wanted it to, to look like the Tyne Bridge, which is in Newcastle in England, and also the Hellgate Bridge in New York looks similar as well. They wanted it to look like this. But also, and this is quite interesting, when you look at it, it's got these stone pylons there, which don't exist in the Newcastle Bridge. It, it does exist in the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Now, why? Now, it's interesting. These pylons serve absolutely no structural function. They're not holding the bridge up. They look like they're nice and strong, don't they? And in fact, that's the whole point. They're supposed to look strong. So the story goes, when the plans were first shown to the public at the Sydney Town Hall or something, and people were able to come on through or they were put on the front of the, the newspaper, whatever happened at the time, people objected that the Sydney Harbour Bridge, as it was proposed to look, seemed a little flimsy. It seemed like it didn't have the structural integrity required to support the weight of all the cars and trains and people going across it each day. And so the, the engineers decided, well, let's add some big stone pylons there just to make it look stronger. And that's what they did. And that's what ended up happening because people said, yes, this one looks a lot better. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that the reason why the Sydney Harbour Bridge looks the way that it does isn't due to not only just merely the physical forces acting upon the bits of metal in deterministic ways, but it's also not only because of the choice of engineers and designers. They weren't forced into having uh, this particular design, given the constraints of physics. That the choice was made, the free choice was made, to add design features that serve absolutely no structural purpose whatsoever. They're just there to look good. And so um, granite was mined from uh, down south in Maroya, I think it was, Maroya in the southern part of New South Wales, uh, uh, 18,000 cubic metres of this stuff was brought all the way up to Sydney, you know, uh, carted in trucks and a three-plus-hour journey all the way north to, to Sydney in order to build these, you know, carefully constructed stone pylons that, again, do absolutely nothing. So the reason why? Human creativity. Just for aesthetics. So aesthetics has forced, uh, not forced, it has caused brought into the world uh, this particular huge structure. And that, that, that's the explanation. The aesthetic explanation is the explanation. And trying to deny the aesthetic explanation would be a kind of a ridiculous exercise, I think. Okay, back to the book. I'll read a little longer now. I'll try and get through the entire next paragraph. Nowadays that, and by that David means the unique effects of creativity, nowadays that includes the experience of rapid innovation. By the time you read these words, the computer on which I am writing them will be obsolete. There will be functionally better computers that will require less human effort to build. 
Other books will have been written, and innovative buildings and other artefacts will be constructed, some of which will be quickly superseded, while others will stand for longer than the pyramids have so far. Surprising scientific discoveries will be made, some of which will change the standard textbooks forever. All these consequences of creativity make for an ever-changing way of life, which is possible only in a long-lived dynamic society, itself a phenomenon that nothing other than creative thought could possibly bring about. However, as I pointed out in the previous chapter, and chapter 1, it was only recently in the history of our species that creativity has had any of those effects. In prehistoric times, it would not have been obvious to a casual observer, say an explorer from an extraterrestrial civilization, that humans were capable of creative thought at all. It would have seemed that we were doing no more than endlessly repeating the lifestyle to which we were genetically adapted, just like all other billions of species in the biosphere. Clearly, we were tool users, but so were many other species. We were communicating using symbolic language, but again, that was not unusual. Even bees do that. We were domesticating other species, but so do ants. Closer observation would have revealed that human languages and the knowledge for human tool use were being transmitted through memes and not through genes. This made us fairly unusual, but still not obviously creative. Several other species have memes, but what they do not have is the means of improving them other than through random trial and error. So that there is a, just pausing there, that there is a crucial point, that other animals might very well have memes, but not the means of improving them. They might do this random trial and error thing, but they're not intelligently designing the knowledge as we would do. We have memes, and we are able to construct memes deliberately, if we like, not always, but if we want to, we can construct certain memes, we can work hard to create a new theory, a new design, something that will persist over time. Animals tend not to do this. People are, uh, as David says in the beginning of Infinity, you know, sort of um, overly impressed by the modest achievements of the higher apes or of certain dolphins and so on. But it is a categorical difference between human beings and every other species on the planet. Now, there is something that David will say later about species that existed prior to us. Homo erectus, perhaps Neanderthal, and so on. These other um, homo species that seem to have had the capacity to explain the world. Because they had art, they had the capacity to create fire. Um, there's a whole bunch of other bits of evidence and, and bits of the puzzle that go together. Uh, when considered as a whole, one would say, well, it seems as though these other species, different to us, did have this capacity. Now, I'll have something to say about this when we get there. Um, because it seems as though all of these species did arise in the same place. It seems like they had a common ancestor. And that common ancestor, we might wonder, could have been the first universal explainer. And we've descended from that. And for the reasons that David will say in the book, that capacity for explaining the world wasn't used for much at all until recently, um, biologically speaking, or geologically speaking, in terms of um, time frames that we're talking about. Uh, so just, just continuing... 
talking about those other species that seem to have memes, like some of the great apes, for example. They don't seem to have the capacity to improve uh, those memes, except through random trial and error. And David goes on to say, nor are they capable of sustained improvement over many generations. Today, the creativity that humans use to improve ideas is what preeminently sets us apart from other species. Okay, so pausing there, and this is where I'll end this. <laughs> we got, we got yeah, just a little over uh, one page, I think, through the book. So this is a record for me. This is a record um, um, in terms of ratio to reading to commenting. Anyway, this thing that sets us apart from other species, David says, the, I, I would say the importance of this cannot be understated. It's, it's everything, especially in moral terms. And this links to, to chapter 12, Bad Philosophy. What separates us as humans from other animals, and this might very well include knowing, for example, as is discussed in chapter 12, knowing whether or not other species can suffer, or indeed experience qualia of any kind, have a subjective experience of any kind. One thing we know is that animals are nothing like people at all in this sense when it comes to creativity. We're very alike in terms of biology, granted. The brain, our brain, the homologous structures, as we say, look similar. The brain looks similar in the human, as it does in the great apes, as it does in the dolphins mammals and large-brained creatures. The brains all have similar structures. But this doesn't mean anything. You know, like computers have similar internal structures, but some of them will be running a word processor and some of them will be running a 3D game and some of them will be running YouTube and so on. The, the, what the computer is actually doing can look vastly different. And I think that the difference between the software that's going on inside of a human brain and every other animal is categorically black and white different different and it's not just a matter of degree like dolphins can learn some tricks and we can learn lots of tricks and apes can learn to communicate one with another and we can learn to communicate far better their vocabulary is 50 our vocabulary is 500,000 you can choose your own favorite animal and then the criteria by which you want to compare humans with that animal in order to, 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 to say how intelligent that animal is in comparison to us, that they're, 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 they're kind of just like us. Well, I would say, no, they're completely different. It's night and day because people are universal, universal in their capacity to create new knowledge, which means literally whatever can be understood can be understood by us. If there is an explanation out there, if there's a physical phenomena out there which has an explanation, we can find the explanation. No other species that exists, no other extant species on the planet can do this. It is this special capacity that we have, this ability to model the universe, and this is how I kind of began today's episode, that sets us apart from the other species that are out there. Those other species can't create explanations of the kind that we can. Those other species are trapped by their genes in what they can do, their behaviours, and if they can understand anything at all, it is only what their genes allow them to understand. The difference between poison and food, for example. The difference between hot and cold, let's say, possibly, I don't know, but if it can understand anything at all. It's condemned by its genes, whereas we're not condemned by our genes. 
in the same way. And as more time goes on and more knowledge is accumulated by us and as we create more explanations, we escape, we achieve escape velocity from our genes entirely. And so the diseases that ravage us because of the imperfections of our genome can be left behind because we have used our memes, used our knowledge to overcome the problems that we have genetically. But the, the, the animal can't do this. The environment changes and the animal can go extinct. The entire species of animals can go extinct unless we choose to do something about it, as I've also said. Um, this is not like a person. The environment around a person changes and the person will change the environment rather than be changed by it, typically speaking. Sometimes the environment does change too fast. A tsunami happens, an earthquake happens. Okay, we get that. But as time goes on, our capacity to deal with these things ever faster and ever more robustly will continue to improve. So we are categorically different. There is something very special and unique about us, and we don't understand it fully. David is about to explain the little we do know about how creativity evolved here on planet Earth and what it was used for for so long because apparently our ancestors had it, our ancestors that went extinct. And he'll talk about uh, what did Homo sapiens do? Maybe we were at war with these other species and that's the reason why those species are no longer here. I don't think he buys that um, particular idea uh, because we can consider what static societies were about. We've talked about that previously. But I have for want of another word, ranted <laughs> this episode. I have talked um, a lot. And so this is, uh, rather than titling this episode um, one, <laughs> I will go back and retroactively title this episode zero um, because I don't think we got through enough to really call this a proper beginning of an infinity chapter exploration. This really is an introduction and Brett having a, an opportunity to indulge himself with some of the very exciting things that all come to bear, that come together from the entire rest of the beginning of infinity and, and come together to really support, for want of another word, <laughs> we shouldn't say support, but come together to frame and shape what this chapter, chapter 16, is going to be all about. So look forward to the next episode, um, which I hope will be out soon. Once more, thank you to all the Patreon supporters and the PayPal supporters as well. Um, find me on Patreon. Find me on PayPal. Uh, the links are there at www.bretthall.org on the front page there. I think you can find some links there to how you could support me and my endeavors in continuing to explore the beginning of infinity. Um, and at this rate, at this rate, <laughs> I was using today. It will take us another 10 episodes to get through this chapter. No, it won't. I will promise to read more next chapter and comment perhaps a little less. We'll see how we go with that. Until then, bye bye.